to Sancho's Boys. This is your co-host, Tim Amatuli. And I'm Chris Cote. And I am very excited today. We're talking about Throne of Blood from 1957. And I have a personal soft spot for this one. This was my very first Kurosawa film. Really? I didn't know that. That's uh, not mine. I'm going in order, <laughs> as we all know. But uh, it's a good one. That's an awesome uh, first pick. Yeah, it was in my high school theater class. We were oh, shown it because shit. it is Kurosawa's adaptation of Macbeth which is Kurosawa's favorite Shakespeare play. And I was told that this was the single most accurate adaptation of Macbeth ever put to screen. I don't, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> Not entirely sure about that, but it definitely adheres very closely. <laughs> I, I would think there's a lot of... Tra- <laughs> <laughs> I would think setting it in Scotland might make it a little bit more accurate. Yeah, it's definitely not exactly the text of Macbeth. Maybe it's the most accurate translation of the spirit of Macbeth. <laughs> You know, I'd watch a lot of Japanese cinema as a kid, but never anything as really intellectually stimulating or as formally artful. And everyone in my class hated it. Awesome. They were all so (laughs) bored with... It's not even a boring movie. Incredible. With Kurosawa's film, I was like leaning forward in my seat for the entire like two class periods. That's so cute. Just totally enraptured with it. And Uh this is is when I fell in love with him. Yeah, little Tim uh, becoming the person he would be. Yeah, well, it is a story of ambition. Uh, yeah, I think in my class we just read Macbeth. <laughs> but I couldn't even tell you if you read Macbeth because I don't remember. So that seems like a much more formative experience for you. I I get Macbeth and Hamlet confused a lot. <laughs> I know I've never read Hamlet. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I've never read Hamlet. Really? Yeah, I've been involved with theater productions in which it is part of the plot maybe like five different times. But they're all like Shakespeare parodies and it's just one of them. <laughs> Definitely never read it. Macbeth? I think I did. I don't know. But I certainly don't remember it. Certainly a lot of this was surprising to me. (laughs) That must make it feel all the more original. Yeah, it was like, wow, uh, cool story. (laughs) How did you come up with it? (laughs) Especially the parts where um, I just can't even imagine how it was translated from the original. Like the second encounter with the spirit. I have no idea what that one must have been like in Shakespeare. One thing to remember about Macbeth is the uh, orgy scene with the three witches that has been replaced by one weird witch in a shack. Yes. Kurosawa could have shown us the orgy, but didn't, because he's a coward. I knew there was three witches, and I noticed that it came down to one. I did not know it was for uh, possibly prudish reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Translating Macbeth to Japan is actually a bit difficult, because the East and West have very different perceptions of the meaning of spirits and ghosts. In the West, you know, ghosts kind of haunt people, and they're scary, and they want to, like, do harm to the living, but... In Japan, as Donald Ritchie puts it, they have no motives and are instead diviners and fortune tellers who attempt to pierce the future. That's fair. I noticed there was like, this is a forest spirit, and it's like controlling the forest, and I was like, that's definitely not in Macbeth. Like, that wouldn't make any sense in like a Shakespeare play. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's very Buddhist, very Shinto. Yeah, but it's cool. I think it works pretty well as an adaptation, all things considered. Oh, absolutely. I think Kurosawa really utilizes the fact that he's adapting theater to the screen, as we've seen him do before with Men Who Tread on the Tiger's Tail and The Quiet Duel, and as we'll see him do again next week with Lower Depths, a little Mm -hmm. bit with The Bad Sleep Well, and later on King Lear with Ron. But he actually is taking a lot of inspiration also from no theater. Yeah, I read that in the Criterion description, but I don't actually know what that would mean, because I don't know anything about no theater. So no theater is the longest lasting, still performed type of theater in the world. It's been around since the 14th century and still is performed to this day. Very cool. 
a big part of a no drama is the use of masks and the certain type of way that people move around the stage. You can always see everything. Because of that, here Kurosawa is using very few close-ups. We're always keeping things at a distance. Lady Asagi in particular, her performance and her face are kind of built like a no mask. Yeah, she almost doesn't move her face at all. Her face is very unmoving and her scary performances and the way that she walks around is very much the way that a no performer would play a character like that. Okay, that makes sense. That is very cool. Yeah, it's like the spirit of theater is infused and no, Kurosawa said, is his favorite type of Japanese art, period. Above any type of painting, any type of script, everything, no is as good as it gets for him. Maybe about film. Is the spirit supposed to be inspired by no theater? The way he moved his mouth was insane. It literally looked like a mask. I believe so. Do you remember how that one crazy guy looked in Sanshiro Sugata Part 2? The guy who like punches the hole in the dojo? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That character was built to be like a witch in a no drama. Oh, okay. And I think we can now see how similar their designs are with the crazy hair. And I believe in No, they carry like a feather or a stick or something around. There's definitely a lot of infusion and influence of East and West here together, which I think makes a really interesting whole that Crusoe wrote and actually wasn't going to direct. He was initially only going to produce it, and apparently it got so expensive that <laughs> Toho asked him, since they have so much on the line, would you please do it? No one else can do this. They'll fuck it up. We're begging you. <laughs> yeah, it looked expensive. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the scale of this film, Seven Samurai was a huge scale film, but I think this is even more than that, because now we're really seeing samurai not ronin, and we're seeing full castles and giant armies of armored people. Yeah. It was crazy. I was like, I didn't know they had the capacity for this. Kurosawa is such a stickler for period accuracy. They actually built an entire castle and he had them tear it down because it wasn't right. That's awful for his team, but I guess good for the movie. I didn't know that's what castles look like, but they looked awesome. They said that this isn't rooted in any one time period. It's kind of a mixture of different Japanese aesthetics from different eras. This is really more of a cautionary tale than a character drama, like a theater play, you know, just being the backdrop. Yeah, I think it's totally fine they did that. I believe that this film could be summed up. I mean, it's uh, what happens is Macbeth. <laughs> yeah, you seen Macbeth? It's like it's, that. It's like that, yeah. After putting down a local rebellion, samurai commanders Washizu and Miki encounter a spirit in the woods. The spirit details a prophecy in which Washizu will soon become the lord of the region, and Miki's son will soon replace him. After Washizu tells this to his wife, Lady Asagi, she convinces him to kill the current lord himself, framing another samurai commander's troops. Wushizu becomes the lord, and Asagi pushes him further as she sows seeds of doubt about Miki in him. Miki's execution is ordered, and his head is brought to Wushizu, though Miki's son has escaped. As rebellion and suspicion continue to build, Wushizu returns to the forest to consult the spirit again, which tells him that he will not lose a single battle unless the forest itself begins to move. Knowing this is impossible, Wushizu becomes confident that his rule will persevere. Lady Asagi suffers a mental breakdown after giving birth to a stillborn child and seeing the lord's blood on her hands, which she cannot wash off. Suddenly, the forest begins to move towards the castle, chopped down by and disguising the rebel forces. Wishizu's men lose confidence in him and fill him with a barrage of arrows. The movie starts with a tale of an uprising and a battle. I think it is kind of confusing. So what I think happened is we got the forest king, and then he has a secondary castle called the North Castle, and then five forts. Two forts revolted against the other forts, and then also a neighboring warlord was also attacking. Maybe. 
I do think that the beginning of the film is a bit confusing because it throws a lot of names at you. It throws a lot of places at you that you don't quite follow. I wish that he had done something like he did in Seven Samurai where we got a map of the land and got an idea of how this kingdom was laid out because I did find myself confused a few different points in the film where I didn't know what fort or station we were supposed to be in. Yeah, it was pretty confusing. But I think much more important than what was actually going on was the way the king's court was set up in the first scene. I was just blown away by the fact that they're all sitting in this crazy position, all the discipline of the bodies and the actors and the way it's set up. Like, immediately I was like, oh, this film is like, it's really something. They're really setting up this world. And get used to it, because we'll see it a lot more. It is a very accurate depiction of samurai life. I believe it. I don't know. I have no, I can't check it. Something surprising is Takashi Shimura is in that court, and he's not in a whole lot of this movie. It is Mifune's show. I wasn't even totally sure if it was him, because his face is always inside a huge helmet. He has a mustache that does not suit him, and it, it barely looks like him. I was like, if anyone's Takashi Shimura, it's that guy, but I don't know if it's him. I love the king's helmet with the giant crescent moon. It looks like it's flopping all around. It's so cool. I actually liked all the people had their own like individual metal adornments to their helmets. I thought that was really cool. The entire production design of this film is astounding. And actually, I mean, when you think about it, Kurosawa is actually being minimalist. So much of the film is shot with just so much fog behind people and in single rooms. Like, we're actually not even seeing all that much all the time. We just get these few glimpses of it that make it feel like this enormous world. Yeah, it definitely feels more or less like a real kingdom. Like, they really they went out and, like, they did it. They made the whole thing, which is crazy. You know, it has rules and a way, an order of operation and a court and court politics or whatever. Like, it was all set up pretty well just immediately from the opening. We find out that Washizu and Miki are traveling back to report a victory and to be commended for fighting valiantly for their lord. And they establish pretty quickly that this forest is a total labyrinth and how can anyone ever navigate through it through the rain and the fog? They even say, this far as the labyrinth, no one knows it better than us, and they immediately get lost. <laughs> like, they're immediately like, wait, how do we get out? <laughs> we can't navigate our own labyrinth. But then it turns out that's not their fault. They're being haunted by a spirit who is keeping them in the same location every time they try to leave. That effect is really played up well with the fog, how they just keep emerging from it, don't really know where they are. They do that several times. They'll run off screen and then like show up in the same area again through some trick of editing. That's kind of the impression you guys that they keep ending up in the same spot. There's a lot of cuts. There's a lot of footage of them lost. But then the way they decide to get unlost is possibly the funniest thing in the movie. They're like, oh, we'll just fight our way out through the spirit. So they just charge, spear out, shooting arrows into the air, <laughs> into nothing, <laughs> running as fast as they can down the path. And then finally they break through to some other place in the forest. They find this spirit's hut. Another just such a cool design, really creepy performance, kind of like in Rashomon, I think it's someone speaking with someone else's voice. Yeah, I believe so. Very ambiguous, but it was really cool. The way the spirit is just sitting there, dead-faced, spinning a, a thread wheel for some reason, uh, but like totally mechanically, really otherworldly, as they just sing a song about ambition and death, prefiguring what's going to happen, which also actually happens in the very beginning, we didn't mention film starts with like a weird choir singing and then we're looking at like a gravesite or something and then it ignores that yeah we open up with a chorus which is another no element oh, okay another full circle kurosawa because the film is bookended by a chorus kind of like a greek chorus commenting on what is going to happen and what has happened oh you know that also happens in shakespeare plays too often there's like a prologue that tells you the entire plot so i guess that's what that was and then it, oh yeah two different theatrical sources that have their own spin on it and they kind of line up they find the spirit? 
Washisu, played by Mifune, uh, like, threatens the spirit or, like, just kind of, like, gets up in his face. He's like, who are you? What are you doing? Yeah, they're angry because it just keeps singing at them. Yeah. <laughs> and spinning the thread wheel instead of telling them anything. But when it finally opens its mouth and lays out their future for them, it's nothing they ever could have expected. Yeah, he looks at me, he's like, General Washisu, he's like, uh, yes, you will today become the commander of North Castle and soon be the commander of the entire kingdom via Forest Castle. A samurai is defined by his loyalty to his lord, and it really is a story of people withholding their own ambitions. Washizu keeps denying to himself, to his wife, to Miki, that he doesn't want to be the king of the castle, but he really does. But the way that the world is set up, he is not supposed to do that, and he's not supposed to give in to his own ambition. The world will eventually punish him for going through with it, or I guess being coerced into it. Yeah, I feel so bad. I was like, he really didn't want to do it. (laughs) He tried so hard not to commit multiple crimes throughout this entire film. This spirit just pierces right through him. Yeah, the spirit even says, you know you want that. And then it tells Miki, your son will soon follow him and he will actually become the king of the castle. Yeah, it sucks. sucks. I mean, you'll be commander for one, but that's about it for you, Miki. Sorry. Miki's condemned to a life of servitude. They kind of brush it off. They're like, oh, that would be cool. But <laughs> whatever. The spirit makes a crazy exit when its oh, yeah. robe like flies toward the camera and then it suddenly vanishes. And then we got this nice dolly shot while they kind of go into the hut a little bit. And then we pull back out and the whole hut is gone. I think a totally convincing effect. Yeah, that was that was awesome. It was so cool. So eerie. Just so sets the tone for the film to come. I think especially the camera it goes through the house and then it backs up back to where the house was and it's gone. And it's within like a couple seconds. It's amazing. You don't even notice that the effect is happening. And that's so hard to pull off, especially in 57. It's totally convincing to me that it freaks them out too, as it would. Yeah, they're like, all right, uh, let, let's get out of here. And then I think there's 12 different edits of them just going through fog, totally lost. And eventually they just stop. It's insane. It goes on for too long. Right towards the very end, I was like, all right, this has been way too long. And like one shot was like extra long. I was like, oh, this must be the last one. And they came back in and out like a few more times. And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) This whole thing is like an ink painting. Like that's the whole design of it. Everything is so dark and the fog is so white. This is a very, very black and white film. I know they're all black and white, but this one is really, really black and white. There's no gray. Not your average gray black and white film. Yeah, even the opening, uh, when we see the castle, it's like pure white for a while, and then just very slowly the fog fades away and you see the castle. It's an amazing effect. He's playing so much with fog and wind and rain and just adding more tools to his arsenal, doing the things that he always does, but in new ways. I think that happens a lot in this film. They finally see it, and then after hours of sifting through the fog, are like, oh, there's where we're going. Let's take a rest. (laughs) I'm so tired. Let's just sit down. Fuck it. It's like literally like 10 minutes away. Like it's right in front of them. And they're like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if I suddenly became the king? <laughs> Unless. Unless, yeah. They're like, that spirit was crazy. There's no way we'll be the king of North Castle in 4-1, right? And then wipe. They're being treated in that ceremony. Another, just that ceremony on its own. It's so simple, but so cool and totally doesn't feel like anything else we've seen before. It's at night. There's fire. There's so many people. Yeah, it's awesome. They're awarded these swords and are given their promotions. And you see the looks on their faces when they get it. Toshiro Mifune's entire face in this movie, they definitely have done something to make him more gaunt. He looks a little bit more like a mask himself, but he looks crazy. Everything is slipping away from this guy. As Washizu and Miki walk away from the king, they look horrified and saying, oh my god, this is coming true. 
they look so horrified that I was like, is someone going to call them out on that? <laughs> They're just like walking like death rictus down through everyone. He looks more terrified there than he does after he actually kills him. Yeah, yeah, after he kills him, he's like, yeah, whatever. And then now we meet Washizu's wife, Lady Asagi. One of the most despicable characters in cinema history. I hate her so much. I hate this one so much. I was like, oh my God. He is just trying to like stay in his lane and mind his fucking business. And she is like, you got to kill everyone you love. You got to kill the king. You got to kill your friend. He's going to betray you. Everyone hates you. It is crazy. She's really like the only villainess that we've ever gotten. Kurosawa doesn't generally make women the antagonists. Yeah, she's like the only villain in the film. Special shout out to Isuzu Yamada for her performance as Lady Asagi because it is really, really impressive. Even though it's so minimal, her face barely moves. I don't even know how she's able to speak without moving her mouth the way that she does. But she really owns the creepiness of this role and is maybe the most memorable thing about this film because we haven't gotten any sort of character like this. She was a fascinating character. Like you said, just totally still, always staring forward, very calmly and quietly saying words that she knows will drive her husband totally insane. You would think that she is the evil spirit, not the actual one that they encountered earlier. I think she is the only evil character in this film. <laughs> Toshiro Mufune really, really doesn't want to kill the Lord. He's like, no, I have no ambitions like that. I'm just going to stay in North Castle and it's fine. And she's like, you got to do it. She just like gets into his brain. Not only you got to do it, I've already devised yeah, yeah. the method by which you are going to do it. I'm going to give these men drugged wine and then you are going to kill him and frame them. And he's like, no. And she's like, I'm already doing it. Like she just like starts doing she, it. She like, he's like, no. And then she gets up and she comes back with the poisoned it. wine. <laughs> It's such a cool shot with the dark doorway where she walks in, totally fades into darkness, and then walks back carrying the jar. Yeah, it was awesome. There probably is a cut in there somewhere, but I don't even notice because it's so ominous and slow. Better than in any other film that he's made so far, Kurosawa really captures an atmosphere. I absolutely agree. The only thing I thought about, the darkness was incredible. It was also like, how how can she see in that room? <laughs> like, how do you find the wine if it's literally like, a, it's like the portal in Howl's Moving Castle. She just goes into like blackness, but it's in real life. I was like, wait a minute. You can't find anything in there. Yeah, you just hear like a crash. Yeah. <laughs> she walks in. <laughs> I think crows caw several times during the scene. And I think the guards say, oh, that's a bad omen to hear a crow. But then she is like, oh, it's a good omen. It's, that means it's going to work. I think that's part of the, one of like the themes of the film is our interpretation of fate. The constant motif of the birds throughout this film works so well because it's an allusion to the fact that the forest is being chopped down outside them, which is going to be the key to Washizu's own demise. As the forest is being knocked down, the birds keep leaving and more and more of them keep showing up and no one really knows what it means, but we know what it means. We come to learn what it means, definitely. But at this point, his wife's just killing the Lord, just killing the highest master of the land, committing the highest treason. Out of, like, her own ambition, he, like, really, can I stress this enough, listener, he did not want to do it. He's a good guy. He, like, this entire time is just, like, Mr. Too Damn Honorable, like Toshiro Mufune often is. And, like, I really believed him. And I was like, man, this sucks so bad. I think the thing is, he does want to be the Lord. Yeah, but that, but that's not a crime. But he doesn't want to kill the Lord to do that. He has the ambition, but he isn't himself willing to do what it takes to get him onto that position because there's no other way that he would ascend to that role. His wife is the only one who is able to acknowledge, I know what I want. This is how I'm going to get it. And you're going to do it. Yeah, but there's something, 
do something honorable by wanting to be the Lord and then not killing the Lord. And she's like, absolutely not. <laughs> she convinces him by saying, Miki's going to tell the Lord and the Lord's going to kill you. Like, it's already it's already happening. It's already set in motion. Yeah, she's gaslighting him. Yeah, absolutely gaslighting him. <laughs> then the Lord comes and he starts freaking out. It's a very cool scene when they're like, oh, the Lord's outside. He's like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, I'm dead. The Lord's like, oh, I want to make you even more honorable. I love you so much. I want to have you yeah, leave the command. Guess what? I'm staying in your bedroom, and now you're going to stay in, like, a blood-soaked bedroom or something? That that whole part is very weird. Yeah, the blood was from one of the people in the opening scene, like, one of the commanders of the North Castle who rebelled and then killed himself. Yeah, a rebel who probably committed Harakiri inside his bedroom, and it's just soaked in blood. And now, Washizu can't kick out a subordinate out of their bedroom to let him sleep in a nicer one? Like, they're really gonna force the Lord of the North Castle to <laughs> sleep in there? It's the only nice room. There's a few little details like that that are sprinkled throughout the film that are just kind of weird and confusing and don't seem to make a lot of sense, but it's fine. Lord comes and says, oh, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to make you like the head of the army. And she's like, oh, only so he can kill you from behind. Just to like get in his mind again. I was like, God, I was so mad. Honestly, it's like an improv masterclass. This woman just is able to take any new information and instantly contort it to here's why this will result in Miki betraying you. Yes, and kill your master. <laughs> so there's three guards outside of the Lord's room where he's sleeping we don't see Lady Asagi drug them. We just cut or wipe or something and they're asleep. We watch Toshiro Mifune leave. We don't see what happens. We just stay with Lady Asagi for a while and she starts to have a moment where I think she is even getting scared about the events that she has set into motion. She starts kind of having a mini panic attack. Yeah, good. Washizu walks back in, hands and spear soaked in blood and a just thousand yard stare and that snaps lady asagi back to reality because oh my god we have the incriminating evidence in our bedroom we gotta get rid of it yeah i gotta complete my plan by planting this on a guy who was clearly too drunk and drugged to possibly have done it but then they yeah they give it back to they took one of the guard spears and they give it back to him and so Lady Asagi pries the spear from Washizu's hands, and her hands get covered in blood in the process, which will become very important later. And she returns the spear. And she, in the classic imposter move, says, murder, murder, there's been a murder, who did this? Me reporting the body I killed five seconds ago. <laughs> and everyone comes running in, and then that snaps Washizu back into place, and then he pulls out his sword and then runs to the center and kills the guard who they planted the evidence on. One thing that I do find weird, though, is that he does still have the blood on his hands. I don't know how anyone doesn't notice that. <laughs> In my head, I was like, oh, he's going to justify the blood by saying he had to kill the guy who killed him. But he doesn't really. He just kills him. It's just covered in blood anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just meant to be like you can fill in the gaps that no one is going to levy crimes against their own second in command. Well, the key thing to this plot is that even though the Lord was sleeping there, they weren't his guards. They were Nariyasu's guards. Takashi Shimura. I think it's they're his guards. Yes, they were another commander's guards. So then they pin the whole thing on him. They're like, oh, his guards killed him. He has ambition to be king. Ooh, like, And that's how the whole plan kind of goes down. Noriyasu and some of his men get away. And that's something that's going to happen throughout this film is that more and more groups from this kingdom are going to splinter off and become the rebels that they were fighting before to take down Washizu. So he's creating this giant army that he himself is going to have to face. Or, you know. <laughs> or not. Nariasu gets away, along with the king's son. A huge save by Miku, who could have let them in and could have just, like, totally taken control of Forest Castle. But no, he's like, I trust Washizu. These guys gotta fuck off. And then there is the funeral procession into the city. The knowing glance between Washizu and Miki. Miki immediately knows that Washizu killed the lord. He's like, well, we have to talk about this later. 
Washizu sus. Vote him out. But instead, vote him to be king, which is what I'm going to do. Miki says that he will forward Washizu as the rightful successor to the Lord. Yeah, like, this is one part of the prophecy that we can actually fulfill pretty easily. All I got to do is say that Miki's son is my heir. Bingo, we're, we're golden. And then Asagi, miss, never satisfied. If you didn't hate her enough already. Why would you like Miki's son to be your heir? Why not have your own son? And he's like, what are you talking about? We're only married. How could we have children? Yeah, well, she's just placed on the throne and he like famously doesn't have a son or a daughter, I guess. And then he's like, we're going to make Miki's son. It'll be totally fine. Like, he's like, this is what I want. Asagi literally says, I didn't get my hands bloody to not have my son be king next. And like, to fuck off. Oh my God. <laughs> like, you get your hands, you got your hands bloody because you touched the spear and gave it back. You didn't do anything. You, didn't, you just drugged the guards. I was so mad. I was like, ugh. I love her one line too, where she says, children have killed their parents for less. <laughs> if Washizu had just let Miku's son be next in line, he would have been fine. I mean, the movie wouldn't have progressed because there would have been no conflict, but he could have lived his life happy. He could have been the king. It would have been like a little weird because people would have known that he killed the last lord, but it's fine. Nope. <laughs> Asagi fucks it up again, and this time goes against the prophecy, which I think is what leads to his downfall. Though maybe this is the prophecy all along. The way this happens, though, is really interesting. I wasn't quite expecting it either. So they hold a, a dinner with all the lords. The who's who of uh, Forest Castle. Miki's horse is acting up for, like, seemingly mysterious reasons that are never explained. Which is another Kurosawa touch. Remember, that man adores horses, going all the way back to Uma. A kind of suspicious horse that knows something is going down is something that we'll see later on in Kagemusha, and we may even see again in other films. It's a, another little trope that Kurosawa likes to employ every once in a while of an animal that knows more about a plot or a presence that humans do not. And it's also a clever way to distract the audience, because Miki doesn't show up to the dinner. And at least I was thinking, oh, you know, his horse is acting up. He'll, he'll be there. And he just keeps not showing up, and Washizu starts seeing his ghost. He starts seeing the ghost of Miki, played by the actor from the last four Kurosawa movies. The one who keeps going on and off being good and bad for his role, in my opinion. I thought he was okay at this one. He wasn't perfect. He just has such a weird face. He's just so doughy. I think he has a little bit of a boyish charm to him, which I think makes his loss even sadder because he literally did nothing wrong. He has a boyish charm, which is weird for like military general of feudal Japan. It just, whatever. Anyway, Miki is dead, as we know by actually seeing his ghost, though it's also implied that it might just be an aberration of Ushizu. Ushizu sees the ghost, freaks the fuck out, starts acting crazy. His wife, bloodthirsty for power as always, tells all the journals, oh, don't, don't, pay no mind, he's just drunk, haha. Oh. He always gets like this when he's drunk. <laughs> He always attacks spirits, spirits that aren't there. He <laughs> starts swiping his sword around at nothing. Yeah, freaking everyone out. She's like, the night's ruined, because he does it twice. They leave. Yeah, yeah it, ha it happens twice. The first time, he's just seeing it and moving around a little bit and screaming. The second time... Tries to kill the spirit. He goes to kill the spirit. We don't even see the spirit. Like, the actor isn't even there. It's just we're seeing it from everyone else's perspective, where he's swiping at air, just stabbing, 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 and screaming. And Asagi's like, so, yeah, no dessert. Everyone head out, you know. We have ruined your evening. Sorry, good night. <laughs> She's pissed because all she cares about is power, and he made a fool of them and undermined their position. And then right after everyone leaves, a soldier comes in with Miki's head wrapped up in some cloth, and that's how we find out, all right, he ordered his death. As soon as he comes in, I was like, oh, it's gotta be Miki's head. Yeah, and they don't show it, because you know it. Yeah, so he comes with Miki's head. I knew it was Miki's head. The thing I didn't get was, is this a thing that Asagi did behind Washizu's back again? Or do they both agree to have this be the plan? 
I agree. I thought it was a little confusing. Yeah, I was like, when did this happen? Did Wishizu know? Is that why he feels guilty? Or, like, did he not know that Miki wasn't coming? And that's why he's freaking out about the ghost. I don't know. I took it that Washizu did authorize it, and he feels really guilty about it, and that he's seeing this spirit that might not even be real. It might just be a figment of his imagination, and it's haunting him because he feels so much guilt about everything that he's doing, as he just is propelling his life into a downward spiral. I think that is correct, but it's, like, not very clear. And then this guard was also supposed to kill Miki's son. The prophetic guard of Thorny fails, and for this insolence, he is murdered by Wishizu, who is, at this point, totally lost his grip on basically everything. But he murders him, and then freaks out as his, like, sputtering corpse falls to the ground. A pretty brutal death scene, yeah. Like, we see it from behind. We don't see, like, blood shooting out of his neck or anything. You hear it, and you see a lot of it pulled in front of him, and he's kind of just squirming around and twitching, and it's really protracted, and it's not a character that we've even seen before this. Yeah, just some random guy. It's just the horrifying watching death happen in real time, and it was totally unnecessary, like all of the death in this film. It's just Wishizu just losing his grip. People die along the way. It's the throne of blood, baby. We never even see the throne. (laughs) Enough time passes for Asagi to go through her pregnancy, but... People, the midwives run up to Washizu to tell him that Lady Asagi has given birth to a stillborn son. They have just been further cursed. He cannot have an heir. The heir must be Miki's son. And now they have tried to have an heir. And as a result, it has died in her womb, which makes sense. There's nothing nurturing within that woman's body that could possibly give birth to a live son. She's near death. He's freaking out. And this is also the moment they learn the castle's under siege or they learn there's been a rebellion. Everyone is freaking out because this doesn't seem like a battle that's going to go well. And I think everyone else is starting to be very suspicious of Washizu. Yeah, we got a nice little scene of the gate guards being like, you know, a lot of shit's going wrong in here. Even the rats run away, and that's never a good sign. That only happens when buildings are about to burn down. So the story goes. (laughs) And Washizu knows that his men are losing confidence in him. So he goes to see the spirit for a second time. Even cooler time. He goes alone in the pouring rain to the forest forces the spirit to reveal itself and the spirit it's cool because the spirit takes the form of a few different people that have died earlier we saw a lot of bones laying around where the hut once was and now i think we're seeing some of those reanimated corpses the spirit ascribes some stuff to the folly of man that is constantly happening people always being destroyed by their own ambitions it really is a tale of this sort of story keeps happening throughout history the different avatars of that same destruction Washizu was in the middle of tell him, oh, you will not lose a single battle unless the forest itself begins to move. Yeah, and he's like, so I'll never lose. And he gets so excited. Yeah, he's going nuts throughout this movie, and here he really starts going absolutely crazy. The spirit also, like, eggs him on. He's like, well, if you're going to be ambitious, you might as well be the most ambitious man ever. And he's like, I will be the most ambitious man ever. And he's like, if you're going to kill people, you might as well kill everyone. He's like, I'll line my throne with blood or whatever. Like, he's really just like hyping him up to like this megalomaniac. That spirit is actually a more supportive spouse than Asagi. <laughs> the scene's really cool. It is unclear why the spirit is so fucking psyched about, I guess he just wants to get him reared up so he'll die. He knows what's coming and, he, you know, just let it happen. I've seen it happen a million times. I'll see it happen a million more times. The multiple bodies of the spirit is very cool. All like cast in white showing up, like one goes into the ground, another one pops up. Very cool scene. We're cutting around and then now there's a new one in a different position behind him. So he comes back psyched as hell because he just learned that he could never, ever lose a battle unless the forest moves to him. And that'll never happen. Right? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Guys? 
Suka's back. His troops are obviously have no morale because they hate him. They hate this battle. They're about to kill their own friends and it sucks and they're probably going to lose. So he gives the classic King's hype speech. This one's made a little different by the fact that this one is entirely about him and his own personal experience seeing spirits. <laughs> I don't think he reveals that he killed the Lord, but he's like, I learned that I would become king. And then it happened. He twists the truth just a little bit to exclude the fact that he had to kill the king to get to where he is. But he did describe certain parts of the prophecy that definitely came true. And, you know, in Japan, there is the belief in these spirits. So especially in feudal times, it wouldn't be outrageous to think that the highest man in the land would have a spiritual connection that could tell him prophetic stuff. Yeah, I think they buy his story. They do buy it, and then he starts getting them really hyped. The whole crowd is cheering, and they're shoving their spears in the air and stuff because he's saying, have you ever heard of a forest moving? No. And everyone starts laughing so hard. It's like in SpongeBob. He's like, you planted grass. Grass. <laughs> so it's nighttime. They're doing a strategy meeting. They're all hyped. They're like, all right, we can't lose. But he's also like, we don't have a strategy. We don't need a strategy because we're going to win. And then they get attacked by a thousand birds. Kurosawa just releases, like, 30 birds in this one room. It's crazy. And everyone's like, this is a terrible omen. This is not good. And he's like, what are you talking about? This is great. And I think one literally lands on his shoulder after he says yeah, it yeah, for, like, yeah. a brief second. I was like, I don't even know how you planned that. That is so perfect. Any scene with birds is nuts. All the people there are like, it is commonly understood in our culture that this is a bad sign. He's like, no, it's good. <laughs> The audience is kind of clued in. We hear what sounds like sawing in the distance outside, and that just precedes this. So we're a little bit clued in about what might happen. Or if you've read Macbeth, you know what'll happen. <laughs> yeah, so he falls asleep sitting down, which is weird. And he gets woken up by the fact that Lady Asagi has finally gone fucking nuts. Totally off her rocker. After the stillborn birth of her son, now we're seeing the iconic scene of Lady Macbeth not being able to wash the blood off her hands, but it's Lady Asagi, and she's doing a very no-like expression and her movements, and I, I don't there's even no think water there's in the water basin. in the basin that she's washing her hands in, it's just totally clean, and it's the only other part in the film that she does actually seem very vulnerable and human, outside of when they first kill the Lord. And yeah, it's just a total destruction of her psyche. And then it's going to be followed immediately by total destruction of Washizu because, hey, um, you know how you said the forest can't move? It's moving. Uh, boss? Hey, boss? <laughs> I got bad news. Everyone's freaking out. And then he runs to see what the issue is. And they're like, the forest is moving. And he says, no, that's crazy. And then he looks and lo and behold, in spoiler, what will be my favorite shot? The forest is moving through the dense fog towards the castle, and it looks awesome. We get a brief look behind the scenes of that to see Noriyasu commanding the legions, you know, laying out their battle strategy. And then, so now, he kind of is climbing down the rafters a little bit, trying to raise morale again, because all of a sudden, he's not so sure that he's going to win the battle that he did not prepare for. <laughs> Oh, man. It's so funny, too, because, like, it's all just a game of morale. If he hadn't told them that and just had told them some other shit, they'd be like, all right, whatever. Yeah, if he said that I cannot lose unless the sky itself will fall or something like that, then he would be set. Because he got his troops super hyped up and now super bummed because the forest is moving and they're all going to die. This is the, the final, the ultimate uh, this the betrayal. This is the craziest scene Kurosawa has ever shot and I think possibly will ever shoot. And I love it. Yeah, so he is up there trying to get his troops back, and all of a sudden, phew, an arrow goes right past him, and he's like, oh, who, who shot me? Yeah, he's like, cowards, how dare you shoot me? And then everyone else. And then another, and then another. another. 
and then an extended scene in which thousands of arrows it's insane he does this weird thing where every time they hit a wall he tries to like pick him down off the wall he's just swiping his arms right he's freaking out so to describe it for people who haven't seen this movie when we say that there are literally tens of arrows flying at him in every single cut we mean it yeah every single time you know the craziest thing these are real arrows I was thinking, I was like, is this an effect? No, this has to be real. I always wonder, how is this possible? I don't see any strings pulling arrows through walls or anything. How did they fake this? And it, how did they fake it? They didn't. They didn't. They, they were just shooting arrows, arrows at Toshiro and he's screaming. I'm like, that is the most authentic performance this man will ever give as his, like, one missed arrow and this man is literally dead. <laughs> Some of them do hit him. I think he's wearing a costume that is meant to absorb arrows because he gets hit, like, in the scene multiple times. He is shot by multiple arrows, and I mean, he, he ends up just looking like a porcupine. Crazy. I love, however they do the effect of that one arrow just going through his neck and piercing it. It happens so suddenly after so many shots of him screaming and seeing 30 arrows fly into the wall on either side of him. He takes a lot of hits, and then finally, yeah. Yeah, finally the fatal blow, and he starts just walking down the steps, and no one does anything, and he just falls into the fog, and it slowly overtakes him. This is the point at which we see the trees being pulled on wagons, which is cool. Sucks they had to kill all these trees for the film. Yeah, whatever. They had to build an entire castle. Yeah, I guess that kills more trees, too. The no chorus recaps the whole movie, and the end credit. It is over. And, yeah, and... Damn, you know? <laughs> it's This is, uh, folks, it, it's, uh, it's a real good one. Yeah. It's really nuts. Yeah, crazy movie. You said that that one shot of the trees was your favorite. You want to elaborate on that? I mean, I don't know, but I assume it's got to be one of the most iconic shots of the whole film. When the spirit said, you will not lose a single battle until the forest comes to you. And I, I didn't know Macbeth, so I was like, oh, that can't happen. But then I hear like them sawing and I hear the birds come in. And I was like, oh, I guess it's going to happen, but that's got to look like shit, right? There's no way they can make this look good. And then lo and behold, Kurosawa does it using the fog that he's been using the whole movie. He really does make it look like trees are advancing naturally through to the building. You just see the treetops bursting out of the fog, moving towards the camera, shaking back and forth. And it looks like awesome. Yeah, it is really, really cool. It is so ominous. And yet you can't even see the people. Yeah, not at all. If this movie didn't have fog the whole time, you'd be like, oh, like, that's kind of corny. They use fog to hide the people. But because it did have fog, like, it's so well incorporated. My favorite shot, I think, is the one directly after that. Because mine is when he's giving his second speech to his men, and this time they are not hyped. The thing that I love about it is we've talked, you know, endlessly about how Kurosawa loves to use groups to emphasize emotions. And this time he is using the stillness of a group instead of the motion of a group to just show how hard his message is thudding with this crowd. <laughs> he, you know, tells him like, we're still going to do it, even though we're definitely going to lose. And then... It's just stillness. It's just nothing. And then he's like, what's going on? And then he starts getting shot. There's spears pointing up that kind of look like he could fall on them at any moment. Yeah, exactly. There's a huge separation between him and everybody else. There's a lot of dead space in the center and he's above everybody, but it just doesn't feel like he has any power at all because he doesn't. His own men have turned on him and they probably, you know, right after they killed him, they probably just opened up the gates and said, please come in. I thought we were going to see them open the gates and be like, you're good. <laughs> I do wish that we did get to see a little bit more of a battle at some point in this. I think a battle in the beginning may have helped a little bit to just understand what is happening. Yeah, it's a surprisingly actionless film. Yeah, it's this surprisingly little action considering that this is one of the seminal Kurosawa samurai films and there's actually very little in the way of samurai action. 
I guess, like in a lot of his films, it kind of builds to this peak where a ton of shit happens at once. And in this movie, it's the arrows destroying him, similar to like the last fight in Drunken Angel or the last chase in Stray Dog. So many Kurosawa films end with Toshiro Mifune getting his ass kicked by the world, though never quite so hard as in this one. He gets owned a lot. Yeah. And here he gets annihilated. <laughs> How do you think he looked in this one? Because. Ooh, the Toshiro Mifune it's, hotness it's, scale. It's, it's a little tough. Yeah. On the Toshiro Mifune hotness scale today. It is tough. His like chin is fucked up. But I thought like the hair, like the, the hairstyling and the beard looked really good. So I, I will go out and say 9.6. I think he looks so good in the samurai armor. And I like his hair. I think his face, just he always looks so tired and freaked out and and is kind of crazy, so he's a little bit off-putting. So I'm going to land right in the middle of a uh, 9.35. Yeah, so overall, what, do you, what did you think of this movie? This one will always hold a very uh, special place in my heart, the first step on a very long journey. I do think that it is really great. It is one of the reasons I love him. It's always been one that I've held up in esteem. I watched it on Toshiro Mifune's 100th birthday to celebrate him. Aw, that's nice. The design of it is incredible. The performances are great. I love seeing East and West mix so well. I think the film has a few little problems that prevent it from hitting a 10 that I thought it was because I just found myself getting a little confused in a few spots that I didn't feel warranted confusion. A few little things sprinkled like that, a few things that drag on a little too long or aren't explained, but these complaints are very minor. It's a great film, I think one of the quintessential Kurosawa films to see, worthy of its reputation, and I'm gonna give it a firm nine. Absolutely. I agree that it's a wonderful film. Not perfect, but very, very good. It has one thing that I think we didn't talk much about, but it has like themes that really explores this idea of fate. At one point, Miki's son is like, that's not fate. You guys are just doing what you think you should do because the spirit told you. That's nothing. That's listening to the fates. Yeah. You're just doing things and things are happening. And then you're calling it fate. In the end, fate does happen. But you know, I absolutely agree. I nine as well. Thought it was great. And we're going to see more Western theater in Japanese cinema again next week with an adaptation of Maxim Gorky's The Lower Depths. I'm excited. It's an, another one I haven't seen, and, you know, we, we've had the pattern of one of Kurosawa's bests, usually followed then by one that no one ever heard of or doesn't really watch that much. But I'm excited to check it out. I don't really know what I'm getting. I haven't seen or read the play. I'm gonna, you know, get a big history lesson this week, I guess. So I'll do my best to figure it out. Yeah, I, th I think it should be good. I, I want to see a Lower Depths movie in any case. So this will be a good one. We'll see you next time for Lower Depths. Lower Depths.